History lecture number 18, Rabbi Bly Weiss. Okay, um, we, are, we are now, we've been, we, it's not the first time we're meeting him. We've been actually, we met him a couple classes ago, but uh, we're now focusing on the holy great figure of, he's now, he's formerly David the Jinji uh, young warrior. Now he emerges with the downfall, how the mighty have fallen, with the downfall of Shaul, Hamelech. David now fully emerges as Melech Israel, the ultimate eternal king. And you know what? He never should have been born. The Medrash tells us I know, I mean, that he was supposed to be a stillborn. Now, go back in time. Was he supposed to like uh, He was never supposed to have been born. Or three days, some say. There is such a thing. Three days. Adam Harishon, great as he was, saw, had a vision and prophecy, all of the great men and women of all of the generations. And he saw this immense neshama that was going to be David Melech and how he was supposed to come into the world but then he wasn't supposed to be here and he, he, he spoke to Kaddish Baruch who said you must let this neshama into the world, the world needs him and so he made a deal with Hashem he said you know what, take 70 of my years and as it were, I don't know how you can do this I don't know if we want to try such things ourselves but he locked 70 years off of his life. How do we know that? And there's a pasuk that refers to, Dov, uh, to Adam as living a thousand years. But when we finally tally the years, when uh, in Breshis, it talks about the various generations of all the early generations, Adam only lives how many? 930. 930. Not the longest, not the longest lifespan in those days. Who, would that, who does that title fall to? Mesushelach lived... 969 years outdoing, outdoing his ancestor Adam, although they coexisted. Um, so, but Adam lopped 70 years, as it were, off of his own thousand-year life expectancy, and David thereby got life. Spiritually, there's, there's a lot of depth to that idea. We, you, you could consider what it might mean. Um, David's name, uh, here's, I always try to include the um, statistics in history as we go. What is, what is the statistic by David's name, vis-a-vis the Tanakh? most mentioned by far of any other name in the Tanakh, it's the most mentioned over a thousand times. By far more than anybody else. Fewer. Far fewer. Moshe's in the, in the Chumash. David, David spans, David dominates Sefer Shmuel. And as we said yesterday, I mean, there's a treme- uh, tremendous significance to so much. What was, what's really hard for me giving this year is trying to, you know, is an expression just like I get reward for expounding I also get reward for holding back there's so much I could be saying that I'm not because you just can't it's just too immense David's life so let's stick to some of the highlights the critical things since we're doing really Judaism's greatest hits we're doing the most important things you know to be a knowledgeable Jew one of the things you have to know David in addition to all of his many 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 great accomplishments he was Technically, functionally, the Gunlador and Tyra. I mean, we think it was a Melech, it was a, it was a number of things we're going to get into now, but he was first and last, last the Gunlador and Tyra. To the point that that was his life, he sat and learned constantly. He, he started something that we have other great figures who'd repeat this in history, but David is the first who, owned, who to only sleep four half hour intervals every day, not not at one time. You know, he'd step, sit and shluff for, for a half hour and then wake up again. Sit and shluff for a half hour and wake up again. That was it every day. So that the rest of his, of his activity in his 24-hour cycle 
was always learning Torah, unless he had to do something else, and, and, and whatever he had to do, he did with a betzimtzum, as minimally as possible. We'll meet some other great figures, most, did anybody know, who, which, which you, remember, you remember, who, who else um, only, also had this lifestyle? He only slept four half-hour units per day. The Vilna Gaon, his sons testified, two hours altogether every day, that was it. And we complain because the slichos aren't we pathetic. What? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that drive you crazy though? No, I Some people think. actually sleep, they can't even stay awake during a class, can you believe that? And they only slept four no. half hour intervals no, no. every day. This is a hazing day, is it? I'm relentless. Wouldn't you think? Eight hours of consciousness. What comes out, if you look at the post game, they say it's subjective and you get, you take what you need, and part of it is individual. If you figure you can go with less, wouldn't that be greater? Because you know life is pretty short, and then we die. Wouldn't it be great if we could make the most of what, the time that we have while we're here? The, in the Graz case, I don't know if this is true in David's case. Maybe it was true, but we have the testimony of the Vilna Gaon's sons, who said during those four half-hour intervals, they they watched their father. His lips were moving, and they got close to listen to what he was saying. He was doing chazara on the on the on the gemara usually that he'd learned that day. Because even while he was sleeping, he was learning Torah, and certainly while he was awake. You want to say it's independent. I want to suggest otherwise. No, I mean like. I want to. I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. You think it's independent and it's no, objective. That's all I mean. Like, that's all your point. No, is okay. I mean, like, let's say a person falls asleep, whatever he does, right? Okay. He stays awake until he feels until he's. Until Can he's I sleep anymore? Or, or, or what we just experienced on Rosh Hashanah a few days ago, the halacha was trying to avoid taking a nap. So the way the post can bring it down is that you no, I mean, every you realize look in the back of the class. I'm sorry, this is really comical right now. Um, no, 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 sleep bubble us. Don't worry, don't don't worry about us uh, as, we, as we analyze sleep. No, it's fine. I know you are sure. The um, the your body decides on its own to wake up. That's the amount of sleep you Right. The body, in theory, does that. Anyway, the finish the thought I was going to say before was just that on, on Rosh Hashanah, the Muslims say the kind of nap that you could take is if you're trying to learn and you naturally let sleep overtake you, fine. If, that's, that's, that's what you do. Not that you should ideally take a nap on Rosh Hashanah, but you could let sleep overtake you. But there's a way, there's a higher level of being that David signifies that a person can actually condition himself that he only needs this minimal amount of sleep. Slowly, slowly. I believe that we are capable of tremendous feats that we don't give ourselves credit for. We don't even attempt well, it. Do you know what I'm saying? It's hard for us. We're, I, I think the, t the scientific term for it, I think is um, wimps. That's the term. We're wimps. And, and fairly flaky, and, and if you want it, somewhat weak, pathetic, you might say. The guy last year, in the last half hours, this guy who was almost always in the base, and uh, when, he, when he felt like he just couldn't go, he would just uh, he would sleep in the game and wake up and then go back to the base. Good. Good. I don't think you should push yourself excessively in this department. Just recognize that there's a that there that there's good, better, and best. There are higher it levels of being. It's possible one day maybe by us too. He was in his in his vast um, godless his greatness in Torah among among his contributions to, to the world of Torah. He was mechadesh. He innovated several takanos. Uh, I'll mention a couple. The Gemara Nivamos tells us there would be a prohibition against marrying givonim. Remember the Givonim, the, the water drawers and the wood choppers who tricked Yoshua into, into accepting them as converts even though they were Canaanites and should have been killed? So those Givonim 
I'm going to mention shortly, proved to be really terrible human beings in terms of their midos, and so he prohibited Jews marrying them. He also originates another one that's very relevant today, and that is prohibiting non-married women from going to the mikveh. It's a major prohibition for non-married women going to the mikveh. What's that? David Hamelech. One of his many takanos that he made is contributions to the world of Torah. So um, the world out there, remember in Shir the other day we were talking about the strange oxymoron that uh, some in the modern Orthodox world refer to as the Tefillin date. And I'm not going to digress into what that is about. You could just try to put those two words together and realize the implications of that. Um, David Melech decreed against such practices. Sure, but not now. Think about it. Tefillin date. A guy who's from enough that he thinks to bring his tefillin because he needs them the next morning. Uh. Something, something is a self-contradiction if you think about it, if you consider the ramifications there. Uh, okay. After Moshe Rabbeinu, David is considered the greatest leader of Am Yisrael. Like Moshe, but unlike most people, David unified the people. And you have to realize this, this is almost the last time in history that Klal Yisrael was unified. And if you realize the significance, of that sta- the significance of that statement. After Shlomo, Klal Yisrael splits apart, never to be reunited all the way until the days of Mashiach. So David succeeds in uni- unifying us in a way that few have. I think that we were unified over the summer. Oh, yeah. There was a semblance of it, but you can easily find all kinds of uh, people who did not. The people who we know kind of bonded together despite our differences. But that, that doesn't mean that Klal Yisrael unified. What about, what about, first of all, technically it's, it's off because what about the, the Aseris Shvatim that are still out there somewhere, the, ten, the lost ten tribes? But even if you say that you include, the, if you don't discount them, what about the disaffected, assimilated, alienated Jews? What about the anti-Jewish Jews? What about the, the woman who's the Holocaust survivor who rails against the state of Israel and, and celebrates, celebrates the, the, the victories of the Arabs and the defeats of the Jews? She wasn't with us either. And, there, and she's... Why? You don't know who this woman is? No, why would a survivor of the Holocaust support the people who are trying to kill them? So go figure. The Jews, uh, my theory is that every Jew that could exist does. My theory is that every Jew, every possible way a Jew could be, exists out there. She being one of them. It's wild, but it's a product of our times. I think we don't have unity, but let's not debate this issue. So how is it possible to have that person unify with us? Halavai. That's what, so, so now you're, okay, so now you're appreciating what I'm saying. David unified Klal Yisrael. That is a big deal. We are an Amche, or if we're a non-Mizi group, two Jews, three opinions. Yes, we will, no, Mashiach will do that job. Kibbutz Galios, we refer to in our davening of the uniting, reuniting the, 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 uh, the exiles. In gathering the exiles, that's referring to a unity, Lassid Lovo, in the future days that will parallel. When was the greatest show of unity for Klai Yisrael of ever of all times? Harsinai. Ishachad Balevachad. We haven't had that so frequently. This is one of these few windows of time that we have it. Don't they say that they forget what every Jew will catch up with two Shabbos and two Rosh That's what Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai would say, yes. We're working on it. We're working on it. Let's keep learning. Let's keep learning. Now, you'll hear, some, or I hope you wouldn't hear, but some, some people will hear, will hear history. It's usually a secular account of history that um, David was a Renaissance man, they'll say. He was a doctor. He was a poet. He was a musician. 
Now, here was a lot of things. And you know, by, by, people have a tendency to try to recreate, recast historical figures in their own image. So if we think today that a universal kind of guy could do this and that and also play the violin while he's you know, strumming on the drums with his feet, with his toenails, and meanwhile doing a complex uh, computer algorithm and meanwhile managing a, a with, an with an harmonica in his mouth and um, also being a partner in a law firm while he's solving the Middle Eastern uh, peace crisis. Okay, all at the same time. So that's what they, they posit that's the ideal person. But you ha we have to say from Torah perspective, David Amelech was a Talmud Chacham. He was a Talmud Chacham. That was his great claim to fame. Secondarily, we would also refer to the fact that he was a musician. Unparalleled, perhaps, but that was a secondary attribute. He was a singer. He was a warrior. Here's some of the descriptions of it in the Medrash. He was a warrior who could bend a bow. He had arms of copper. He was a statesman, a politician, who expanded the borders of Eretz Yisrael to their ultimate boundaries. He went all the way out to Ashur. Look in Maseches Shviz, very relevant for this present Shemitah year. In Maseches Shviz, we find that Ashur, which is possibly in the area of today's Syria, um, has quasi-Shemitah status, and the Shemitah year pertains there on some level. That's because David Melech conquered it in his days. He, nevertheless, majorly was a man of Torah. That's how we remember him. That's what the Torah emphasizes. That's what Chazal emphasized. Um, he was, even as a statesman, not your typical politician, he only surrounded himself with men of truth who didn't manipulate him with flattery, as usually politicians get manipulated by the people around them. And they love to hear it too, because they love, to be, they, they love their egos to be fed. David, in contrast, in Tehillim, he teaches us, Rumia lo yeshev bekerev beisi, Right, falsehood doesn't doesn't dwell in my household. I wouldn't tolerate it. David teaches us. Um, he is an author. Most famously, what did he author? Tehillim, the book of Tehillim, which is the great work, the Jewish great work of Emuna. It expresses the deepest, most complex articulation of a person's Emuna. It speaks to everybody, everywhere, in all times. If you're not, if you don't have a great facility with Tehillim, do yourself a favor and get used to saying it. Once upon a time, the term Tefillin Jew, not Tefillin Jew, Tehillim Jew, thank you, Tehillim Jew was a great virtue, was a great compliment. If you were called a Tehillim Jew, it meant you had a certain, what's called the Emuna Pshuta, a simple, pure kind of a faith. Today, sometimes they use the term as a put-down. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it didn't go well with the Gemara Rashi Tosfos. I guess you're, you might be a good Tehillim Jew. You, know, you, couldn't, you couldn't like make it, hack it with the real boys in the base Medrash. So he's a Tehillim Jew. We look, and it's not just in the base Medrash. People today have an emphasis, sometimes we're overly intellectualized, and we de-emphasize uh, pure faith. But our tradition is one where, on a certain level, the Pasuk does say, we're supposed to have a certain purity of faith. David, with all of his intellectual brilliance, was a, a, a man who's deep and emotional. You don't have that emotional life. You don't have that ability, for example, to cry when you should cry. Somebody just now sat me down in a room, uh, and I mean, I was happy that I had this capacity. I didn't always have this capacity. I've worked on it over the years, because as a man, I think uh, you know, the, in the society and the culture that we're part of, we kind of shut off that valve of, uh, of the emotional bit. But somebody told me something incredibly powerful about him changing his life around in the way that was just so affecting that I just sobbed. Was anybody really should have sobbed and then it occurred to me, I wonder if everybody would also sob if they heard his story. You should. Do we? David would. 
David, you can tell, was an Ashumadika kind of a person that comes through in, in, in Tehillim. And if you don't have that capacity, you should work on it. And one way to do so is say Tehillim more. Um, Tehillim was authored by David, I should just add as a qualification. You know, some of the chapters were written by others earlier. And then eventually, eventually David got the tradition of those chapters and wrote them down. But famously, over Shabbos, in the, in the, in the, you were there? Over Shabbos, anybody with me, ate with me on Shabbos? So in Shabbos, I mentioned this. There's a, there's a famous Bryce in Abbas Rabbi Nassan that, was, that refers to? Mizmor Shir Liyom HaShabbos, Tov Lados Lashem, which was originally written by Adam Arishon. But the tradition came down to David, and David actually recorded it and included it in his Tehillim. Now, where do we find David? At this point, when we last left our heroes, Shaul had fallen, fallen on his sword, literally. His surviving son, I gave this as homework, did anybody do the homework? His surviving son, but half our group is not here and half the people are our guests today. We also said we would find out. Yeah, we did. So his name is Ishboshes. Ishboshes is technically the second Jewish king. People often, I, I asked a very knowledgeable Jew, do you know who the second Jewish king was? And he said, David, of course. And I said, well, technically, no, it was Ishboshes. He said, who? Who? So Ishboshes was a Jewish king for two years. Um, replacing his father. Um, he was set up by the army captain of his father, a man by the name of Avner Ben-Ner. Um, he only ruled a portion of the Jews in Gilad, Ephraim, and Emek Israel. The rest, what's called Beis Yehuda in the south, followed David. David was based in Hebron. So he was the second king, though. So he was the second king. And David hadn't emerged yet fully as the king over United Israel. That will take, that's a, that's a process. That's going to that's gonna have to evolve into being. Initially, David is just king in Hebron. But pay attention to Hebron. Hebron winds its way through much of history in a very significant way. One of its claims to fame is it's the first seat of David's monarchy. Um, David's only there for seven years total. He rules after he conquers Yushalayim for a total of? 40 years, so seven years in Hebron, 33 in Yerushalayim. Um, a little bit of the technical intrigue, it's pretty interesting, I'm summarizing. Meanwhile, back in the north, so you're drawing the, ca the cartoon version in your mind and you're in, as you picture it. So meanwhile, in the north, Avner, Ishboshes' general, um, he has a series of bloody encounters against David's general, Yoav. Pay attention to Yoav, he's a significant player. Um, and Avner is defeated at each time. Doesn't mean that they lose entirely. Ishboshes is still around and still calls himself king, but David's men gain on them. And Yoav ben Shruya is a significant player. Yoav is, among other things, he's the nephew of David Amelech. Um, the Gemara says that Yoav wouldn't have won the wars had David not immersed himself in learning. And then they were a great tag team. David couldn't have learned without a reliable military man like Yoav. So they got scar for one another, for one another's efforts. Um, in our Gemara, in Makos, it describes Yoav, even though Yoav makes some terrible mistakes, as, as, a, as an ideal kind of a general. But he, he, he has certain uh, flaws. Yes? But we have this Yoav-David I think that'd be a fine idea to say that today. You're referring to the idea that, um, that much of the secular and, and national religious population would like to draft the fellows in the base medrash learning Torah. Um, certainly the fellows in the base medrash learning Torah right now can cite as a precedent David to Yoav. 
Some are needed to fight the war spiritually inside the base medrash. Others are needed in the battlefield. I'm, I'm more referring to the protests than that. Like, you say the protests against the wars uh, that happened in summer. That what? Uh, some prairie groups are protesting the war because That's more complicated because they have to understand what's the nature of this war, what does it fit, is it Milchemes Mitzvah? Probably not. Is it Milchemes Rishus? Probably not. It was, what does it fit? It can really be drawn as a parallel to the wars of David and Melech? Probably not. You have to, you have to see if the, if, the, if the parallel holds up. Ish Boshis accuses Avner now. He turns on his own right-hand man. He says, you took my father's concubine, which is an act of war. Because you, you take the late king's mistress, his concubine, and that's a show of power. It's a power struggle. So now the two top men in the north are struggling with one another. Avner denies it. He gets angry. And he defects. So he now leaves Ishboshis and goes down to David's side. So now Avner is on David's side. Is this too many names and places and too many people, too much, too much intrigue? Because there is a certain amount of intrigue that takes place. This is great, like passing of the marathon here. You take the baton and you run with it. No, it's fine. Uh, no, so, the, uh, so now Avner comes down. He's with David. And Avner brings somebody along with him. Do you remember this yesterday? Avner brings Michal. Now, where was Michal previously? With Michal. That, say it again. With that Ooh, You're good, Kiva. Paltiel. Remember, Doeg had, Doeg had advised Shaul to take Micha, that Micha was never really legally married to David, even though she was, and that she married, even though she didn't. Paltiel, and they slept with a sword between them. Now Micha, now um, comes Avner, he brings Micha back to be reunited with her correct husband. She never consummated the marriage with Paltiel. She comes back, okay, so pay attention to that because she's going to play an important role shortly. Um, and Avner comes and says, now that I'm defecting, David, is, David effectively is Melech over all Israel. Yoav doesn't like Avner. Avner had killed previously Yoav's brother. And so Yoav conspires and ultimately kills. He slays Avner. And David is not happy with Yoav. He publicly grieves. He condemns Yoav's act. And meanwhile in the north, lots of intrigue, Ish Boshis is assassinated by his own men. So the second king, who's really, if you want to count Yoshua as a king, and it seems says it's an argument that Yoshua is the king, really. If you want to count as a king, the second king or the third king of Israel is gone. David now emerges as the, in, as the fully united king of Klal Yisrael, and it's official right now. And as the final act to reunify the households, the first monarchy, Shaul's household, is almost wiped out. One of the sole survivors is his beloved friend, Yonasan's son, a person who's, not, I know, kind of, kind of shvach here, huh? Uh, well, a couple of the guys, a couple of the regulars are real sick. Yeah. Okay, we'll get over it. Hold on, he's finished. Yonasan's son is named Mephivosis. He's not exactly a hero, but David, in his, consistent with his personality, overlooks the flaws of Mephivosis, and he takes him in. Mephivosis is famously lame in both feet, and he takes him in, treats him like a son, and um, permanently seats Mephivoshis at his table. That's, pay attention to this. David has this seemingly limitless capacity for chesed, even to people who double-cross him, and it's not the last time we're going to see this. Go ahead. Um, what was that whole thing I, I, I saw in the Gemara? Um, the family, um, the Maccabees. What about them? Uh, 
There's really only one Maccabee Yehuda, but go ahead. You're talking about the Gemara in Baba Basra by Hortus, yes. by Herod who slays all of the Maccabim. What the Hashmonaim? What's the connection? I'm just saying, um, was he? Uh, random question: Was he um, officially like later on? Because like I think um, um, the Yehovah Navi yeah. told him how to correct his sin and everything to write to rebuild the way something. Not Eliyahu Navi. It was it's it's, it's Hordus. Hordus, yeah. Hordus was a false king. He didn't deserve the title, and he had no spirit of Hashem with him whatsoever. The only thing that could be said is maybe then the Gemara indicates perhaps he had Yeru Tshuva. That's why he justified building, rebuilding, or renovating the second temple. But um, he doesn't deserve to be mentioned in the same breath as David and his illustrious household. Only base David are rightful, deserved kings. Everybody else who uses the title is a pretender to the throne. And after the, the last king of the Jews, anybody know this? Who's the last king, official, legitimate king that Klal Yisrael would ever know? His Zaha. name? Say it again. No, no, no. Acha wasn't a legitimate king. He was a king in the north. Tzidkiyahu. Tzidkiyahu was the last king at the time of the Chorban Bayis Rishon, the first temple destruction. He's the last official king, even though others will use the title. Wait, we'll, 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 all this, we're ahead of ourselves here. He's the last king over united Israel. Yeah. But the but the southern kingdom were legitimate kings. What was it legitimate? The other kingdom was the illegitimate breakaway. The southern kingdom was the legitimate monarchy. So they were all legitimate kings, all the way down to Tzitkiyahu. May I, may I continue? How is it illegitimate if there's a prophecy? There's prophecy throughout throughout Rishon, all the way through Baishani, to the beginning of Baishani. David now um, attacks a little city by the name of Yevus. Anybody know where Yevus is located? Yevus. Well, you go out um, this corner, go up the street, oh, just about about a kilometer or two in that direction, and you find the ancient Canaanite city called Yevus that will be renamed Yerushalayim Ir Hakodis. It was one of the few areas that Yoshua and all of the Jews, through all that initial period, neglected to conquer. So it's, it's this one little holdout of a Canaanite presence called Yevusim in the city of Yevus, and David attacks, finally. It's an attack that's been waiting to happen, and this is the Makom. This is the place, this is finally, we're, we're, we're honing in on zeroing in on Yerushalayim. Why this area? In Eretz Yisrael, and I should really, you have your map, some of you have maps that you keep with you, but if you take out your map and you look at it, you see the situation of Yushalayim. It's neutral territory. Again, it's not been conquered, and therefore it's not been divvied out to any one of the tribes. And therefore, every one of the Shvatim, all the tribes, Shittekah, can equally claim access and legitimacy. No one can say, you know, we own Yushalayim. Um, technically, Yerushalayim falls between Binyamin in the north, that's where we are right now, and Yehuda in the south, but think about that symbolically too. Binyamin represents all of Rachel Imenu's tribes, and then Yehuda represents all of Leah Imenu's tribes. It's really a city that's meant to galvanize and unify the nation. I don't like the, the, the um, parallel exactly, but it does make the point. Sort of like Washington, D.C. in America, which is neither um, Confederate South nor is it really totally Yankee North. It's somewhere safely neutral in between. 
So you have that quality of Yushalayim, as the Gemara in Yuma actually says, it's, it's, it's a place that all the Shvatim can rally around. Um, he demands the removal, there, um, the, the, the Jebusites put up on the city walls, these two groups of people, blind people and lame people. And you have to look at the Medrash, you have to look at the Malbim and understand what's going on with that. Uh, the different, the different explanations, but one of them that I'm going to cite is that the Jebusites descend from Avi Melech all the way back to the days of the Torah. Do you remember Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov? If you don't be embarrassed and learn it this t- this next round, we get another time. We're going to read through all of the Torah. Now pay attention to your Chumash as we as we read it every week. You'll see that Avi Melech makes a pact with Avraham and then with Yitzchak and with Yaakov. And there's supposed to be peace between them. And now these people, the, the, what they, they claim they're the descendants of Avimelech, and therefore the pact is still good that they made. And who is the proverbial blind one? That they said of the blind people? Yitzchak. Who's the proverbial, proverbial lame one? Yaakov. He limps, right, with the Gita Noshet. And so they're saying, remember the pact, David? You can't conquer us. And David responds, it's no longer binding. You guys aren't technically related to Avimelech. You made a mistake. And he comes and he conquers the city. Yoav actually conquers the city. David comes in. And now we find for the first time in Jewish history, one center to unify everybody. It's the eternal capital, Yerushalayim. The term Yerushalayim is never mentioned once in the Chumash. Even though it's alluded to, it's Ir Shalim. Malki Tzedek comes from Ir Shalim. But now we're going we're to find Yerushalayim as the center of gravity in the universe from this time until all time, until the days of Mashiach. It is, it is the, as it's described in Chazal as the Tibor HaOlam, the umbilical cord of the world, connecting the physical, this world, all of it, all seven continents and all the seas and every aspect of Olam Hazet, of the physical world, as it were, by the invisible umbilical cord to, uh, cord to the heavenly world, we call it Yushalayim Shalmata, parallel to Yushalayim Shalmala, earthly Jerusalem to heavenly Jerusalem and now this has now come on come on the map in a significant way and one of the first acts of David is to take something very symbolic and meaningful of Klal Yisrael and to bring it to Yerushalayim I'm thinking of course of the Aaron Kodesh the Aaron Kodesh and he goes down to the city of Kiryat Yarim, otherwise known today as Telstone where I live uh, and he brings the, he, with great fan for he, he first brings the Aron Kodesh that you remember was stolen by the police team and came back to Beis Shemesh and then is in Telstone. It was in, it was in Kirat Yarim for many years. He now, with great fan for, brings it up. Um, they pass through, uh, as, as, they're, as they're taking the Aron, a, fe, a, a figure by the name of Uzzah puts his hands on it, which is irreverent. He shouldn't have done it, and he dies. And David temporarily leaves it in a place called the house of Ovid Edom Hagiti until Hashem's wrath passes. And then finally, famous, in a famous image that's really that the Mishnah Bar brings on Simchas Torah that's coming up in a couple of weeks, um, he says, how should we dance in Simchas Torah like David danced at this occasion? When David brings the Aaron Kodesh up, and what's in the Aaron Kodesh, of course, the Luchos of Reis, the first set that are broken and the second set that are whole, the gifts from the Plishtim and later on the Man and many other elements are brought up. He brings it with un- unabashed, incredible enthusiasm, dancing it all the way. The Mishaburah says that's how we're supposed to dance on Simchas Torah. And interestingly, also the Mishaburah mentions another figure in history who also danced with complete abandon. The Gra. The Gra. Interesting, another parallel between David and the Gra. Interesting, I, had, I don't think I made that connection myself per- previously. The Vilna Gaon, the, one of the great figures in all of history. 
names. They're, they're interchangeable. They're, they're both names for the same person. David dances the Aaron to the um, to, to, to Yerushalayim, and somebody is looking out of the window and is none too pleased. I'm thinking, of course, of Shaul. No, Shaul's dead. Shaul died. Shaul died in yesterday's class. Who's who's looking out of her window? I mentioned her earlier today. His wife Michal. And she comes to the king and confronts him. She says, this is the dignity of a king to dance like this in front of his subjects. And she's critical. Remember, she comes from royalty herself. She's the daughter of the king. And she knows better. And she says, this is not befitting a king. And David defends himself. He says, do you know what? Some, there's a time and a place for everything. And this is completely fitting. This is how I show Kavad Taira. And that's why, and you see this today, sometimes you see incredibly dignified Gedole Taira dancing with a bandit at Simchas Taira because there's a time and place to dance with, uh, without self-consciousness, as David does, so much so that Michal is punished. She is too much, too over-conscious of etiquette, and the Pasuk says explicitly she never has a child after that until she dies. And the explanation, does that mean maybe when she dies, she finally has a child, she raises her sister, uh, Merab's uh, children. Whole question, what happens to Michal? She's a Tzedekist who made a mistake. Um, he builds in the city of David a tent where he keeps the Aaron Kodesh temporarily uh, until later on we're going to see his son Shlomo will finally bring it up when he builds the base of Mikdash, um, when he brings the Mishkan from Givon to the base of Mikdash, but that's coming later. Last episode for tonight. David defeats his, enemy in his enemies in several attacks. And David has an ambition. He wants to build Hashem's home in this world, the base of Mikdash itself. And one of the great Nevi'im, Nosson, tells him, you can't. Why not? I thought he told him you could first. Ultimately, he says you cannot. Yeah, no, but like... At first, right. Ultimately, what's the reason that he explains he, David is not qualified to build a temple? He's blood on his hands. His blood on his hands. Exactly right. The plans to do bloody Hashem's house requires a certain gentle touch that will fall to his son Shlomo still famous exchange famous Gemara when Shlomo comes to rebuild the, te the temple the doors won't open for them and it's a famous drasha from the Pesukim that we say open the doors and they won't open until finally there's a mention when Shlomo invokes David's name remember the chesed of my father David only that alone not because of Shlomo's merits but David's merits are the merits to open the doors so even though David's hands are too bloody don't ever don't mistake it David is the greater of the two. Wait, and well, it's Chus David that the doors ultimately finally open. Eitan and Anabi. Can we maybe say that... Are you? Are you? Can we maybe say that David Malach couldn't build the base of Mikdash because otherwise Shlomo Malach wouldn't have a long Haba? Nobody says that. That's too much of a leap. You're referring to the to the Medrash that says, but you're ahead of us. That Shlomo Shlomo's one of those that doesn't get a long Haba. Don't think so. Don't think so. Shlomo's quite a complex figure. Go ahead. Are you? Okay. So, are you saying that like Shlomo built it and then the doors just kind of got stuck? Like the doors wouldn't open up? If you're trying to convert it into sort of a mundane physical story, story, yeah, sort of. The doors got stuck. But clearly what the Gemara is trying to express is something profound. There's something about Shlomo, even though he built the temple, that was not quite worthy on the level that David was. Just, just because David wasn't the one who resulted to build the temple doesn't mean that he was uh, Actually, he was a lower they, figure. I heard they were trying to open the doors, and like when they tried to open the doors, they opened a little, but then they shut right away. Correct. That's a fair. That's a fair rendition too. Um, tomorrow, when we revisit our our heroes, uh, we're going to see David's arguably 
Um, darkest chapter, most humiliating experience. However, it's a misunderstood experience. As the Gemara Shabbos cautions us, Misha Omer David Chata. Anybody who says that David sinned, Eno Elatoa, is mistaken. If you think what happened with Bathsheba was it was what it looks like, it's not what it looks like. I'm not to say what it was, but Rosh Hashem tomorrow.